morning. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. We're in this series on the, the second half of the Gospel of Luke, and it's called The King and His Cross, and we're looking at the twin themes of the kingdom of God and the cross of Christ and how they sort of weave into each other as the Gospel goes on. And today we're going to be reading a chapter in which Jesus tells two absolutely extraordinary stories about money. Jesus talked a lot about money. Um, I think he knew, like many of us do, that money is probably a better indicator of what you really worship than anything else. It's probably a better way of telling what your heart really thinks is valuable than any other single metric you could use in your life. And so Jesus was always talking about it. And in this, par- this passage, he's going to tell two stories that are, I think, quite shocking in many ways. That The second one will sh- probably not shock us as much as the first one. But both of them would have shocked everybody in the ancient world when Jesus told them. And so we're going to read Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you haven't been faithful with what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And that little exchange sets important context for the next parable, which is all really aimed at the pride that comes from loving money. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, there's a great chasm between, has been fixed between us in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I've got five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of God. Challenging stories, right? Hard stories. No one ever spoke like this man, is what the crowd said when they heard Jesus speaking. And both of these stories are about money and possessions. And they're about the way in which, we, really, we use our money wisely. But they're two explosive stories. Um, and in a, what I want to do is to start with the second one, because although it's still hard to hear, I think it's easier for us to understand, and then to go back and look at the first one. And the second parable, the rich man and Lazarus, we call it the second parable, is a classic first will be last and last will be first story. Right? It's about the way that the world will be turned the right way up when Jesus returns as judge. Theologians would call it the eschatological reversal, right? That is the way that things are going to get turned the right way up at the end when Jesus comes as judge, that all injustices will be righted, every single one. There's a rich man in this story who feasts sumptuously every day. It's like a cartoon of a very, very hyper, uber wealthy person. Every day he eats exquisite food and hosts loads of people around his house and he wears purple clothes and fine linen. And I looked this, look this up, I was interested to discover from one commentator that even that just the word linen, which would normally be used for your undergarments, he's basically got fine linen tunics or undergarments, which in English would basically mean you are literally wearing fancy pants. I just thought it was great. So he is like Mr. Fancy Pants. That's who this man is. And in contrast to him, you have a poor man whose name is Lazarus, who is also like a cartoon of the very, very poor. And he lies at the gate of Mr. Fancy Pants, hoping for scraps, rummaging through the bins, and he's covered in sores which the wild dogs will come and lick. I mean, it's again, it's a graphic, it's a gruesome way of describing the contrast between intensely rich and intensely poor, and the fact that the intensely rich can often not care, and they can be right next to each other. Now, obviously, this only happened in the ancient world. It never happens in London, so you don't need to worry about it. But just in case, you know, this is, I actually was in Mumbai last Sunday, and it's interesting how you can see these contrasts more clearly sometimes when you change culture. And you suddenly see, wow, yeah, the, the, the next-to-each-otherness are very rich and very poor. I think it's common in every culture, and certainly in ours, and Jesus is speaking to that. But there's a note of hope in the introduction. As he introduces these two characters... Very, very rich man, very, very poor man. The note of hope is that, well, did you notice? Jesus never gives a name to any of his fictional characters in the in parables. He tells dozens of parables that none of them had names except this one. 
Yeah, the prodigal son, don't know his name, the dad, the good Samaritan. We don't, don't hear any, any names except in this one case. And I think it's as if Jesus is saying that incredibly poor, the picture of the poorest person there could ever be, I see them. I know their name. Right? This is not just poor person and rich person. This is Mr. Fancy Pants, fair enough, but this is also a person, Lazarus. I know him. I value him. I can see him. And then when they die, everything is instantly turned on its head. So Lazarus goes to Abraham's side and receives comfort and peace and rest, and Mr. Fancy Pants finds himself in torment in the flames. Now, I should just say, I don't think this story is teaching us about the literal nature of eternal life. There's a number of reasons for that, and I won't go into them all, but I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, the nature of of eternal life is that all poor people are saved simply by being poor, and all rich people are damned simply for being rich. Right? Jesus does say it's very, very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom, but he also says with God, all things are possible. Praise God, which means, I'm because I'm, I'm a rich person, so are most of us, and that means even we can find a way into the kingdom. And I don't think he thinks all poor people just by being poor are saved. I don't think that's what he's teaching here and I don't think he's teaching that eternal life is basically the new creation in glory here and hell down here and people literally shouting to each other saying could you send it to what God I don't think that's the dynamic we're supposed to read I think he's using it as a as a means of teaching about money and possessions and the fact that the first will be last and the last will be first and he's doing it using a quite a cartoonish example so that we can see it really clearly he's using the next life as a story about how to live wisely with our money in this life. And we need to use our possessions with wisdom because of the reversal that is coming. And Mr. Fancy Pants still doesn't get it, right? He's down in hell in the flames, and he doesn't realize that the boot is now on the other foot. It's fascinating what pride does to you when you have money, right? Look at what this man says. He suddenly shouts at Abraham and says, Abraham, send Lazarus on an errand to come and give me some water. He doesn't realize that the things have changed. He's still acting like Lord of the manor. He doesn't realize, even though he is now in hell and Lazarus has been exalted in a place of glory, he still thinks he can boss Lazarus around and tell him what to do. In fact, he doesn't even talk to Lazarus. He talks to Abraham because he's another big wig and says, send Lazarus to come and do something for me. Notice what happens, what can happen to your soul when you have money. Be warned, brothers and sisters. Seriously, Jesus is, he wants you to see how dangerous the pride that comes with having money is. And if any society needs to know it, people who live in a society like this need to see the insidious danger of having lots of money. He's not saying it's always bad to be wealthy and be generous. He's saying you must be aware how dangerous this is. You are playing with fire when you have money. Now, be careful. Use it wisely, as we're going to see throughout this message. But don't be flippant and think that it won't affect your soul. Because what can happen is when you have a lot of money, you begin to believe your own PR. You think, I deserve this. I don't know why other people haven't figured out how to do this. Just to do this, this, this. You'd end up where I am too. Why are you down there? What are you doing? Letting the dogs lick you. That's what pride does when you have money. Or can do. And so the reversal has happened. Mr. Fancy Pants still doesn't understand why it's taken place. And the central line in the story is actually Abraham's comment in verse 25. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. 
The message of this parable is a great reversal is coming. And what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Verse 15. And that parable, like so many stories Jesus told, would have been really shocking to his original hearers. In our culture, it may be a little bit less shocking. It's still a bit gruesome, but it might be a little bit less shocking in some ways. But in their culture, it would have been very, very surprising because although the the scriptures are full of, obviously, lots and lots of stuff in scripture about caring for the poor, but at the same time, a lot of the heroes in the Old Testament were very wealthy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, all these characters. So you can see why somebody only reading the Old Testament might conclude, well, basically money is a sign of the blessing of God. There's people in our generation who still believe and teach that. That if you've got money, that's because you're you're favored by God, and if you don't, that's because you're judged by God, whatever. And you can see why people would see it if all you had was the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is doing is turning that upside down and saying, no, Mr. Fancy Pants is down here, and Lazarus is up there. But for their world, that would have been very, very challenging and shocking. In our world, it might be a bit less shocking because our society has been shaped, for better or worse, by, mostly for better, but in some cases not, by by the ethic, by teaching of Jesus and the Christian church for a very, very long time. And so in our culture, the idea of the first becoming last, the last becoming first, the rich becoming poor, the poor becoming rich, that at least somewhere resonates with us such that people feel it's right for rich people to give to poor people, or for rich nations to give to help poor people. Or, but people think that's what good people should do. They might not do it, but most people in our country think it's appropriate that rich people pay more taxes than poor people, right? And that's in itself a result of teaching, particularly the teaching of Jesus, seeping into a culture over many centuries. And so we might not find this story quite as strange, because some, there's something in us that goes, I like it when the really big wealthy person gets thrown down. Ha, ha, ha. You might not. I'm sure you're nicer than that. But sometimes something in this story resonates with us. But in the other story, the first half, the first parable in chapter 16, I don't think there's anybody in here who goes, yeah, that's just what I already thought. All of us go, what? How can you possibly have founded a world religion and go around saying things like this? The other story is extremely bizarre. Luke 16, 1 to 11, we have another rich man. He doesn't have a name, but we have another rich man. And he has so much money, billions of pounds, that he has a fund manager who works for him to manage his money. And there's a few people in the church who do that kind of job. And I've got a friend called Tim who does that job for a living. He manages the wealth of a very rich person. But this fund manager is underperforming. We don't know why. We don't know whether it's because he's crooked or incompetent. But either way, he's underperforming, and the owner finds out about it and summons him to his office. Right? It's Monday afternoon. And the owner says, come in, I, need, I want to see all of your accounts because I think you have been underperforming. I think you have not been delivering what I've asked, and I'm going to fire you on Friday. Now get out of my office. Right? And the fund manager leaves the office, and the first thing he does is he starts ringing round all of his clients who he's been working with who owe the owner money. And he rings them round. He says, hey, can I just come and see you? Um, yeah, what's it about? Well, I'd rather not talk about it over the phone, but can I come and see you in person? And he goes to the debtors. And he comes up to debtor number one and says, um, how much do you owe, Mr. So-and-so? He goes, yeah, it's 100 million pounds. He says, oh, okay. Well, I've still got the prerogative to sign off on changes to the contracts. Why don't I re-sign a new contract in which you now only owe 50 million pounds? What? Why would you do that? Don't worry about it, but you'll owe me one, okay? 
He goes off and rings another guy. What about you? Can I come to you? He said, hi, I'm like 100. Okay, just take your bill, scribble it out. I'll change it to 80, okay? Sign off, not in a wink. Really? Really? Why? Oh, don't worry, but you'll owe me one. And he does that for the whole week. And that's not the strange thing about the story, because some of you might think, do you know what, that sounds suspiciously like this person I know who works in Canary Wharf right now. You might be thinking, yeah, that happens all the time. The weird thing about the story isn't that it happens. The weird thing about the story is that the punchline is not, and isn't it awful that people do stuff like that? Jesus' punchline in the story is, you should learn from this man, from his wisdom and his perspective, when you make decisions about your money. At which point, the whole church ought to go, uh -huh, because what on earth would somebody mean by that? Jesus' punchline is verses 8 to 9. The master commended the dishonest fund manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This guy, Jesus is saying, is a scoundrel, but he's done something very smart because he has now set himself up for life after his job as a fund manager, and now he's got all these friends all over the place who are going to let him stay in their homes. And you need to learn from his wisdom and do the same. The dodgy fund manager has become an example for Christians to imitate in thinking about money, and I ask, what on earth is going on? Why would that be true? Well, the fund manager is definitely crooked, right? We are not, and I should clarify this, we are not, I am not saying, Jesus is not saying that you should go and learn about your financial dealings from going around ripping people off on behalf of the owner. No one is, should go into the city tomorrow and get the train out to Canary Wharf and then just go, do you know what, my pastor, and in fact, the Lord Jesus himself say that ripping people off is the way to go. That's not what's happening in the story. And I know it isn't because Jesus specifically uses the word unrighteous of this man or dishonest is the way it's been translated here, but it's the standard word for unrighteousness. So Jesus is not commending this person's moral behavior, but what he is doing is saying, you need to learn from his wisdom or from his shrewdness. Again, it's the same word, shrewd, wise. You need to learn from his wisdom. He has done something wise or shrewd or canny or smart that you Christians, disciples, can learn from and that thing that he's done that's smart is he has learned how to live in the now in light of then. That's what he's done. He is living now, mindful of the fact that it's now Monday, and on Friday he's going to be fired, and he's only got a week left of this job, this life. So what he needs to do is to live now in light of the fact that the rest of his life is going to last a lot longer and matter a lot more. And so he's going to do everything in this period in light of the much bigger, longer, and more meaningful future. He lives now in light of then. Now, stand back from the biblical teaching on wisdom overall. If you know your Bible well, you'll know a book like Proverbs and what it teaches about wisdom. And I think a pretty good summary of wisdom in the Bible and in Proverbs is that when you're wise, you live now in light of then. Right? So a wise farmer is somebody who works hard now, plowing and sowing and reaping and all the rest, because he knows that then he will have a harvest. And a foolish farmer doesn't. A foolish farmer puts his feet up and has a beer and doesn't do it, has a nice time now, but then when the harvest comes, his whole family starves because he doesn't have any food. And wisdom is living now in light of then, right? Proverbs would say the same about parenting. Wise parents 
work diligently at training. I mean, I, my kids are 11, 9, and 3. I have a lot of training to do right now, right, of my children. And it's hard work, isn't it? Right? Training children is hard work. You're, it's much easier just to go, oh, just forget it, just watch the TV. And I sometimes do that as well. But I'm, but I'm saying that you do give a lot of effort and attention to training. And Proverbs says that's what a wise parent does because they know that although it's going to cost them a lot now, then they will reap a harvest. And it doesn't all, it's not cause and effect, right? It's not, a, you know, it's not magic. Sometimes the wise farmer works hard and he still doesn't get a crop because there's no rain. Sometimes the wise parent works really hard and their parent still does something, their children still do something crazy. So it's not, a, it's not a putting a money in the slot thing, but at the same time, there is a general connection, isn't there, between wisdom in living, working hard now and the, what you reap in the future. That's what to be wise in biblical thinking is. You live in the now in light of then. In contrast, the classic fool in the Old Testament does the opposite. The fool in the Old Testament is someone who lives now with no regard at all for what will happen tomorrow. So the rich fool who just goes, yeah, let's just get all the barns and store all my money and it'll be great. It's like, you are a moron because you don't understand that tomorrow it's all going to be gone. Well, the classic fool in the Old Testament is Esau, right? Because he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. Soup, not steak, soup, like lentils and stuff. Like, no matter how vegan you are, you can't think, yes, that's worth it for a bowl of lentil soup. And yet Esau is held up as this example because he's someone who doesn't realize that the thing he's traded it for is much less valuable than the thing that he's given away. It's like my children when they cover the moon with their hands. Do your kids do this if you have children? You've seen a child do it? Look, Dad, my hand's bigger than the moon because they can't see the moon. And it's really sweet. But at some point you have to say, no, no, it's not, son. It's just nearer. Do you see Esau saying, look, this soup is so luscious. It's better than the birthright. And the author of Genesis is going, no, no, it's not. It's just nearer. And we do it too. We live this way. We go, this financial decision, look at this stuff, look at this thing, this sexual relationship, this whatever it might be. It's so good compared to, uh, and then the Bible is going, no, Jesus is saying, no, it's not. It's just nearer. Right? You need to have wisdom. You need to be able to compare like you teach a child. Put your hand next to how big the moon actually is and you'll see the contrast. You need to do that. That's what wisdom is, Jesus is saying. You need to learn from this man because although he did, what he did was unrighteous and a, he was a scoundrel, but he did correctly recognize the scale of what he has now with the scale of what he will one day face. And he realized that this was much more important than that. And so he chose now to live in light of then. He makes friends for himself using unrighteous wealth. He knows his life is nearly over. Come Friday, he's done. And then the only thing that will matter is the very, very long future life he's in for the rest of his time. And Jesus is saying, you need to live like that. You need to live now knowing that your life as you know it is nearly over. And what very soon, actually, all of us are going to expire. And then when we do, the only thing that will matter with our finances is how we have used them in light of our eternal situation, which we were going to live in forever. And we want to live now in light of that day. And that is the application he makes in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, and it will, you may be received into the eternal dwellings. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it doesn't reflect very well on me, I'm afraid. But I used to, I play Monopoly a lot as a child with my brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest of four. 
And one of the benefits of being the oldest is that you kind of, you understand, in theory, how the world works a little bit better than they do when you're 11 and they're 9 and then 6 or whatever. And my sister Sarah is very, was very sweet, right? She lives just now, just a couple of miles away, on her oak park. We're still friends in spite of this story. But she, uh, she used to be very sweet, and she used to think it was a good idea. And I managed to, let's, no, let's not blame her. I managed to convince her that it was a good idea to exchange my Monopoly money for some of her real money. <laughs> now, so you're playing, I'm playing Monopoly, and, we and this wasn't just a one-off either, I'm afraid. I'm ashamed to say you thought I was morally flawless until that moment, didn't you? But this, this is a, and so and what I would do is I'd say, Sarah, look, I will give you £1,000. That's enough to buy Mayfair and Park Lane and still have £150 left over or whatever it is if you give me two of your real pounds. And she thought it was great. She'd be like, yeah, that's brilliant. Okay, great. And then she'd tell her, Annie, I've, just, I've done this really great deal. Andrew's given me this thing. And, I, and I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> Because I know what she doesn't know, right? Which is that at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. And it's worth nothing at all. And at that point, the only thing that matters is the real money that works for the rest of your life. Jesus is using this man as an example of that kind of wisdom. He's saying, you, are the, you need to use... You've all been given paper money, right? You have it, I do. Some of, you, some of us have very little. Some of us have a few... We measure it in pounds, we measure our budgets and what's going to happen over the next day or the next week. Some of us are responsible for more than a million pounds, I expect, in the assets we have. We've got a big breadth in this church, but we've all, it's all paper money, right? At the end of your life, it all goes back in the box, and so do you. And the only thing that's going to matter when it does is how you have used it to secure eternal treasures, which are going to last forever. And Jesus is saying, you've got to learn from this dishonest fund manager and this dishonest older Monopoly-playing brother, and you've got to learn that there's actually something, although it's unscrupulous, there's something very smart about it, because they recognize that what they have now is not really worth anything in the grand scheme of things. And what you need to do is to use it in such a way as to secure eternal riches for yourself. Use the paper money you have now to get real wealth, because one day they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. So this is probably my favorite chapter in the Bible on the money, not just because I think it vindicates my monopoly strategy, but it, it just gives us several different perspectives on money which we really need to hear. It shows us the relationship between possessions and poverty, like Lazarus and Mr. Fancy Pants. It shows us the connection between possessions and pride through the Pharisees and through this rich man who thinks that he's still in charge even after he's died. It shows us the connection between possessions and perspective, like the dodgy fund manager. But it also gives us three wonderfully helpful principles as we land to work out what to do with this. If there is a great reversal coming, and when it comes, the only thing that will matter is how you've used your wealth in light of that day, in eternal, to invest in eternal things, what do you actually do in the meantime? And Jesus, in verses 10 to 13, gives us three just great principles to work with on this. The faithfulness principle, right? We'll just finish with these. The faithfulness principle, verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful with much. The principle is very, very simple, but a lot of people don't believe it. What a lot of us think is, the reason why I'm not being generous now, or not being whatever now, is because I haven't got very much. But when I have more, I'll be much more generous. That's what people think is true. And Jesus says that's not true. Jesus says, actually, what you'll find is that your faithfulness when you have almost nothing will be writ large when you have a great deal. 
That's the principle he wants you to learn and wants me to learn. And I, by the grace of God, this is something I think I did learn when I was quite young in my working life. Like my first year out of university, I, went to, I did a volunteer job in a gap year. I earned 30 pounds a month. That's really not very much at all, right? That's a pound a day. And a lot of people in the world live on that, but very few people in Britain do. I imagine most of us don't. And I, to be fair, I had a housing benefit covering my home, and I didn't, I mean, you know, I lived in a, with four other guys, but, and I had council tax benefits, so I didn't have to pay that. But even so, a pound a day does not go far, and you spend a lot of time eating at other people's homes and trying to get whatever you can, and I spent a year living on that. But in that year, you have something embodied, embedded into your life about the way that you relate to money and the way you relate to God and how God is going to come first in your possessions, even when you've got almost nothing, you're still going to give. For the very next year, age 22 and a half or whatever, nearly 23, I take a job in the West End working for a strategy consultancy, and I, my salary my first month is like more money than I could possibly know what to do with. Like it's huge. You know, for me, anyway, it was like, wow, look at all this money. And I didn't have any family. I didn't have any responsibilities. I suddenly went from famine to feast. But one of the first things I did in doing that so I went, I need to, must find, a, where am I going to give? I need to go to a local church, and I'm going to find a local church, and I'm going to start giving. Before I become a member, I just want to know how to give. I need to get into that community quickly. Show me, where do I start? I'm going to tithe. I'm going to take 10% of my annual salary each month, and I'm going to give it to you. And I hadn't even joined the church yet, but I was like, that's what I, it's really important I do that. Because in, you're faithful in the little thing, and you have very little, and it quickly translates into, just gets writ large into faithfulness in the big thing. And of course, as life goes on, you're often able to give more than that. But that's, at the time, that was a big step for me. And I think, I'm pretty sure, according to what Jesus says, that if I hadn't learned the principle here, I'd actually have found a way of spending all the money when I got this much. Because that's the way we work. We find that as you, and it's not just true of money, it's true of time and responsibility and many other principles as well. But it's the faithfulness principle. And being faithful and generous with your wealth may or may not increase the worldly wealth that you get, the paper money, but it will definitely increase your eternal wealth, which is what Jesus is concerned about here. The second one is the stewardship principle. If you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Right? The principle here is that you are a steward of someone else's stuff. That's what we are. Some of us have lots, some have very little, but it all belongs ultimately to God. It's somebody else's possessions. And you and I are stewards. We look after it like this man looked after possessions. And our responsibility is to steward it in his interests rather than in ours. And the third principle is the worship principle. That no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, our money exposes our worship, which is why Jesus talks about it a lot, and it's why we do too. It's not, it's not for fundraising primarily. It's because we know that where your money goes is going to reveal a lot about where your heart is. And actually, every financial decision I make edges me closer to Christ or closer to mammon. And if you live in the light of those three principles, it won't just transform your financial life, It'll transform your spiritual life as well, which is what Jesus is mainly talking about here. In this life, you and I are all playing Monopoly with my sister. Right? You are living in a kind of feels like a real live enactment of playing Monopoly with my sister. That you have the daily opportunity to invest in things that last forever, long after the game is over and everything's gone back in the box. And you have an opportunity 
to use, and so do I, to use the money we have now either to spend it all on Mayfair and Park Lane or to say, I'm going to trade this. I'm going to invest this in something that will actually be doing me some good after the game is over and everything, including me, is back in the box. And that doesn't mean that you don't use any of it for things you need now. I do. I drove here by car like many of us did. I have a house like many of us. We all live somewhere. So it's not like it's wrong to own properties in Monopoly. But what you're doing is you're living the whole time. Every decision is being run through the filter of how can I maximize the return in the next life rather than how can I maximize return in this life? Because I'm looking after somebody else's assets and I want him to know that I worship him with all of my heart, mind, soul, strength and wallets. It doesn't mean that we don't buy material things, but it means that every decision now is made in light of then. Like Jesus, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross. The very temporary, the very um, awful, like pain you can't imagine. But he said, I know that it is worth it because even though this will be excruciating, it will produce a far, far more eternal, glorious reward than you could possibly think. And so I will go through the now in light of the then that, I, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and he's now seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray and ask for his help, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. And we say, Lord, no one ever spoke like this man. Lord, to hear his teaching, to hear what he said is still after all this time, so challenging and so difficult for us to hear sometimes. It exposes our hearts. It cuts through a lot of the excuses we make, and we pray for help. We thank you that the Lord Jesus did not just teach us how to live, but he then lived it for us and died for us so that we might have his righteousness cover us where we have failed. And we pray, Lord, may we stand in his grace. May we receive good things from him today, and we pray would you pour out your spirit to transform us so that we might live in our money and in all things like him. We prize and love him and we thank you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.